HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the phone with me today is Janet Riley. Janet is the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Professional Development for the American Meat Institute. In her role, she develops public information and issue management strategies. She manages the press relations and drafts speeches, news releases, and other public communications, as well as overseeing the Institute's news reporting on MeetAMI.com. She oversees the AMI's Member Services Department as well, and in addition, she is the liaison to the American, uh, sorry, to the Animal Welfare Committee and oversees policy initiatives in this uh, area. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thanks so much for joining me today and taking time out of your busy day. Um, Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, as you know, we have committed to making some headway in the sort of uh, polarization of relations between the meat industry and uh, the progressive earthy crunchies like me. And <laughs> this is our first step towards that um, goal. So tell us first, what is the American Meat Institute and what do you guys do? Sure, we're the the oldest and largest trade association that represents the meat industry, and so we are your classic trade association. We we provide government relations representation on the Hill and with the regulatory agencies. We talk to media. We run a scientific foundation that does a lot of food safety research and nutrition product projects, uh, and we run a convention and we do a lot of education for our members. 
fantastic. Um, actually, I want to come to that convention, so I'll have to look on your website and see where that is. Um, now, you recently collaborated on a new video on pork processing with Temple Grandin, um, and that was number two in a series that you intend to uh, produce. I think there's one more in the pipeline for poultry, right? That's right. And you did the first one on cattle, on cattle processing. So can you tell us, uh, you know, take us behind the scenes and explain why you decided to make these, because obviously they're not cheap to make. um, And uh, and what what do you hope to achieve through releasing these videos? It's interesting. You know, it's no secret that Americans are more removed from from the farm, certainly from the slaughter process. It's not something that most Americans have seen today. And so we became concerned that there were some misconceptions, and then with the advent of undercover video technology, people were telling our story for us when bad things happen, as opposed to the many days when everything goes right. And so over time, we decided, you know, it might make some sense to actually show the process and educate the public. And But we felt like we needed to do it in a, in a very credible way and with a leading expert and in this area, there's nobody better than Temple Grandin, and she's been our partner on our animal welfare efforts since 1991. And she was thrilled because she had wanted to see more transparency. She was delighted to host the videos, and so she chose two plants. They're not named, um, but she chose two plants that she felt were representative, and we asked them, would you let us in with, with Dr. Grandin? And they said, yes, no problem. And so we've made two videos that have been incredibly well-received. How can people access those videos uh, if they're consumers at home? We have a dedicated website called animalhandling.org. And right on the front page, you'll see uh, a reference to our Glass Walls project. And so there's a beef video, a pork video, and there's also a print brochure that contains uh, images from the videos that has more text that explains all the steps in the process. And these are not sanitized videos. You, you saw um, the video, Katie, and yeah. I mean, I think you'll agree. These, these really just show it like it is. We don't attempt to sugarcoat the process. It's a process that is quite remarkable when you've never seen it because we're accustomed to seeing something put together. We're accustomed to seeing a car put together. Right. We're not accustomed to seeing something disassembled. And it's, it's quite complicated, and it's a living, breathing animal that de- deserves uh, respect and humane treatment. It's, it's quite complicated, and most people are truly fascinated by the process when they see it. Uh, yeah, I, if you can get past watching uh, stunned pigs rolling off a conveyor belt. I mean, I, I have to say that with all of my experience in butchering and even being in a slaughter plant for cattle, I, that, that one really sort of floored me. But as you say, it's important to see what the process is and that <clears throat> by and large, it's pretty successful at doing um, what it needs to do uh, most efficiently and theoretically without um, any pain to the animals. But why do you think it is, Janet, that processors continue to get busted by animals? welfare groups for abuse. I mean, even in the last year or so, there have been a number of um, like the Butterball Turkey video that came out uh, that showed uh, workers um, kicking and beating turkeys and stuff like that. Why does that keep happening even when you guys are working so hard to, uh, you know, make sure that animals are are treated correctly by your workers? What's going on there? Well, I think that those kinds of videos are incredibly upsetting to the viewer, and they're certainly upsetting to us when you mm-hmm. see something go wrong like that, because that is not how we want to treat livestock and there's no re- or poultry. There's no reason to treat them in any way other than the most humane method, the most humane 
uh, way possible because it's ethically appropriate and it even creates a better quality finished product. There's just so many good reasons to do the right thing. Um, let's um, talk for I, one second about that finished product because um, I think people should understand that when animals are stressed or abused, their meat isn't as good. So there's even a financial incentive for plants to make sure that their workers are handling animals correctly. And that's why I find it so surprising um, that it isn't, uh, you know, that it is possible to catch you guys with your pants down, as it were. Yeah, um, and I think that, I mean, to be fair, I think that in any industry you're in, in any, whether it's healthcare, whether it's, you know, meat or poultry processing, whether it's auto manufacturing, unfortunately, um, you know, there are, it involves people, and sometimes people don't always behave in the way that they should, um, and that's unfortunate. But I think what we don't get to see, you know, we talk about um, null results in research when you, when you don't find anything, and sometimes, like, you're looking for a relationship between a disease and a food, and often when there's no relationship, they don't get published. Well, the same goes for undercover videos. If somebody goes into a plant and finds good practices, they don't release the video and say, we sent an undercover researcher in here or an undercover videographer in here, and we didn't find anything. <laughs> Right, that's <laughs> and I'm quite confident that happens, <laughs> but you don't hear that. And that's why the videos we've released show what a plant looks like when it's operating as it should. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really hard to imagine um, how problems could occur when you consider the level of oversight that we have. There is no other segment of animal agriculture that has the kind of federal inspection that we do. Our inspectors are in during every minute of operation, not just stopping by on a, you know, it's, this is every minute of operation if you're in a plant that slaughters live animals. And in, a, in our largest plants, we probably have about a dozen inspectors per shift. So there are lots of federal inspectors, which is really good because they, you know, they help ensure that, that the processes are working as they should, and they have the power to stop the lines if there's any kind of an issue, and they do stop the lines when there are problems. Um, did you, by the ch- any chance, read uh, Ted Conover's, um, speaking of somebody who did see it working more or less correctly, did you read mm-hmm. his lead? Or his, he had the cover story in Harper's this month. Oh, I sure did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he did, there may have been things that the industry didn't like about what he said, but boy, you know, he didn't report any abuse and it was all very sort of cozy and comfy amongst the workers. I was kind of amazed because it was a real contrast, for example, uh, to Timothy Pacharat's book, Every 12 Seconds, um, which detailed a lot of um, reluctance to stop the line because of the financial uh, implications of stopping a production line for any amount of time in order to correct uh, abuses of one kind or another, whether it's food safety and handling or whether it's actual animal abuse. Um, I think that there's a lot of disincentives for people to not um, call out problems when they see them. Do you, do you not think that's a problem occasionally, at least? Um, well, first of all, I thought Ted Conover, I thought that was what was really remarkable about his piece, was mm-hmm. that you know, it did show things working pretty much as they should, um, for the most part. Uh, it's interesting, the issue of stopping the line. Inspectors have to make big judgment calls. When they look at an issue, they have to decide, is something an anomaly in a plant? Is mm-hmm. something that just happened like a stunner misfired? Um, is that just an anomaly? And, you know, if you change, if you quickly swap out a new stun gun and you ensure that it's working properly, um, you can continue to process without a, a risk of it happening again. That's typically what they want to do because you've got livestock coming in on trucks 
And it's quite, when you consider the logistics of bringing in livestock and poultry into plants, you want to keep that flow going if you can. Certainly, if there's a practice that would pose a risk to other incoming animals, they, will, they need to stop the line or, or, or take some action to make sure it doesn't happen again. But they also have to look at the bigger picture because particularly pigs, for example, on a very hot day, if they get backed up on trucks because they're en route to the plant, suddenly the plant's not operating, that can actually cause a bigger welfare problem. So they have to look at the big picture and make the decision about what's best for the greatest number of livestock. That's an interesting point to bring up. So um, when we talk about animal welfare, and I know that this is near and dear to your heart, what do you see as the next level of animal welfare? Do you know What can your group or any other trade group uh, associated with the industry do to encourage plants and producers, especially to take uh, animal welfare to another level um, where these kinds of, of videos that you guys have, have you know, unfortunately been uh, subject to over and over again, um, where there just isn't, as you say, there just is nothing but null results. In other words, nobody's going to catch you doing something mm-hmm. that you shouldn't. What, what, what's the next step, do you think, in terms of that? What about the third-party audited video stream, for example, that Temple Grandin is uh, so keen on? Sure. I don't think there's one silver bullet, but I think there's a couple of things that, that will continue to, to improve welfare. One of the things we've been doing with Dr. Grandin is really striving to professionalize the role of animal handler in the meatpacking plant. I mean, these jobs are critical. Someone who's unloading pigs, it may not sound like a big glamorous job to someone who's never done it, but it is a really important job. Someone who's stunning pigs or cattle or any animal, doing it accurately, it is absolutely critical to the welfare of the animal. So we've been trying to really recognize the importance of that by providing education. We launched a conference with Dr. Grandin. Our first one was in um, 1999, and every year more than 300 people come to Kansas City to be trained by her to ensure that they're you know, up to speed on practices and equipment. It's quite amazing to watch people from the line interacting with her and asking their their questions or what do I do in this particular situation. So we've been really trying to uh, pull those people in and just sending them on a business trip and and recognizing the importance of that role goes a long way. Are you Um, able to screen your candidates for animal handling? I mean, I know one thing Temple told me is that 10% of the people who work in animal handling should never be allowed near an animal, and that goes for supervisors too. So are you guys making steps to screen better for the people who are involved with animal handling? There has been a... a, a (laughs) movement in the industry to, you know, what are the factors, what are the, um, what are the personalities that will work well in those areas. Mm-hmm. We're just about to go out with a survey of our members, and we're actually going to ask that question. You know, what are you doing to um, ensure that you're hiring the right person for these jobs, and we're going to ask them about things like that. Um, you know, do they have to have experience uh, working with livestock? Do they have to, you know, their personality? Just what, what steps are you taking? So in another month or so, I'll know better what the industry is doing. But I, I feel quite confident that they recognize the importance of getting the right people in those jobs um, because it's absolutely critical. But um, even videos like the ones that we just put out, um, they actually are educational for other members of the industry. Maybe they've only worked in one plant. They've never seen another plant. It's good for them to see these kinds of things and to hear Dr. Grandin talk about the steps. Um, But you asked about video auditing. Yeah. And video auditing is playing a bigger and bigger role. There's a couple of different types of... We use video in different ways. Some plants have video that that broadcasts within the plant. So maybe a plant manager is watching it. Other plants... 
uh, have feeds that go to an auditing company. So they're using the audit that we developed with Dr. Grandin in 1997, uh-huh. and they're actually auditing remotely, looking at various aspects of the plant. So they might be looking at how many livestock fall when they're walking at a certain point, how many animals are stunned perfectly the first time, you know, different aspects of welfare. And then if they see a problem, they alert the plant, but they're constantly providing data. And they can even look at, you know, how different personnel are, are functioning and what's their performance like. And so that's been really, really useful. It's, it's not an inexpensive system, so it may not be feasible for every um, every size company because it would require a big capital investment for a small company. Really? Very high-tech system. Video, yeah. video cameras are cheap. Where, no, I'm where talking the about expense? the remote auditing system. Oh, I see. Like mm-hmm. using something like Aerosite, that company that Temple is... Right. That, uh, yeah. that, could, be, that could be tough for a, right. for a small company, but mm-hmm. um, more and more companies are installing you know, their own video systems within the plants. Well, why wouldn't um, trade associations uh, participate in, in funding that? Isn't that what uh, some of these trade associations are kind of for, is for you know, organizing some sort of funding for, I mean, you certainly, you help out with crisis management. Why wouldn't uh, a trade association also help out with uh, funding something like this? That's really not what a trade association does. We do more research and Uh we provide information and we we host um, conventions where they will exhibit and give them the opportunity to interact with those companies. I see. Um, But we don't typically fund something that would be deployed in a plant. but in terms of the question that comes up is this live feed idea. And some people said, oh, just, just make a live feed and broadcast it to the Internet and show everybody what's happening in every plant. A couple of issues there. First of all, we have unionized federal inspectors. And I think it is highly unlikely that they would ever agree to being broadcast live on the Internet. Um, that would be a big deal. So I think that uh, the inspection workforce probably would object to that. We cannot even photograph an inspector in a plant without prior permission. So you won't see inspectors typically on the videos that we show because we would have to get all sorts of permission to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other issue I have is if I watched something I didn't understand, like if I had a live feed from an operating room, for example, and nobody was explaining to me what was happening, I would have no idea what I was looking at. Is this good surgery? Is this bad surgery? What are they doing? I don't know. That's why we decided that taking the approach we did with Dr. Grandin, where she actually explains it and put some context around it, was probably more useful to people. Well, I can't say I disagree with that, but I still think that having that um, video stream, whether you show inspectors or not, and whether or not people are even um, aware of exactly what the steps are, once theoretically they view all of your videos, they'll have a better idea of what, what to expect. But what do you think is the reason there's so much pushback within the industry against a video stream, whether it's audited by a third party or simply sent to, say, you know, Cargill headquarters? I mean, I've heard a lot of guys in the industry, Raul Baxter, uh, Dr. Ray, you know, like a lot of those guys that blog on Meeting Place are also very much against the idea of the video stream. Is it simply because of the of the anonymity of the inspectors, or what other issues well, do you see? I'm there? not familiar with. I did not realize they'd made comments about it, so I'm not familiar with their specific comments on it. But I don't sense a pushback at all in the industry. Really? No, I sense a real embrace 
um, of video, and when I go to plants, I see it more and more. I'm in plants all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's definitely something that's coming online, whether it's within the plant broadcast right. or into the manager's office or whether it's remotely audited by a third-party firm. Right. I certainly um, got that impression at the uh, convention that I went to, the Animal Agriculture Alliance. I heard a lot of people talking about, yes, let's bring that into the plant and let's make that universal. So, I mean, I have to say that I do feel sort of encouraged about that. Um, Janet, I hate to say this, but we have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. But please, uh, folks, stay tuned to uh, my conversation with Janet Riley, the Communications Director for the American Meat Institute. We'll be right back. Everybody gets broke down. Everybody gets low. This one's called Broke Down by the California Honey Drops, and you are listening to What Doesn't Kill You on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Gotta see what's down that road, but you ain't gonna see nothing but the seeds you sow. back with uh, Ms. Janet Riley, the um, <clears throat> vice president, and uh, let me just read your little thing here. This is vice president of, senior vice president of public affairs and professional development for the American Meat Institute, and we're talking about um, the meat industry and how they relate to um, all the various challenges that they face in the 21st century, uh, not the least of which is um, a lot of consumer uh, distrust, and that's what this conversation is all about, is to try to bring uh, some kind of um, reality check to consumers so that they understand uh, some of the processes that go on in the meat industry, whether or not you want to eat meat. uh, The point is to recognize that the industry is doing, I think, its best uh, to come online with some of the things that consumers are most concerned about. And so um, to that end, Janet, uh, my next question to you is, what do you feel are the greatest challenges that face the livestock industry today in terms of um, reassuring consumers that you guys are doing uh, the best you can to do your job correctly? You know, it's interesting. I I think there's been a bit of romanticization uh, of the way we used to do things. Yes. And that poses (laughs) some issues for us because people have an idea that if it's small and if it's local, it's automatically safer and it's automatically more humane. And that may not be the case. Um, Small and local plants can produce safe and humane products. They can also have problems, and the same goes for large plants. But I think that movies like Food, Inc., unfortunately, have created a bit of an inaccurate picture of how we operate and what we're all about. And now we're playing catch-up. So I blame ourselves, 
to some extent, and me personally, because I'm supposed to be the communicator for the industry, for perhaps not talking more vociferously or more openly, but we're we're definitely committed to it now. And so, um, because I just think we need there are a lot of myths that we have to overcome at mm-hmm. this point. I think so too. For example, let's bring up the issue of the environmental uh, programs that mm-hmm. some meatpacking industry, uh, you know, entities have uh, in- instituted. I wouldn't say that it's universal, and I certainly think that there's a long way to go. But um, you know, a lot of the charges leveled at uh, the processing meat processing the meat industry is the level of pollution that it brings, both in wastewater, in solid waste, and in methane. And um, I happen to know personally that some plants, especially the ones with the big bucks like Cargill, have put in some really sophisticated waste treatment plants. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about um, some of the things that are being done within the industry that address these consumer concerns. Sure. Uh, there's, there are a wide array of programs um, like water reuse programs, energy, um, energy reduction efforts, wastewater treatment on site, um, all sorts of initiatives that are, you know, not even new, that have been well-established for the two decades that I've been in the industry, but they've been becoming more widespread. We're actually going out also with a survey on what our members' environmental practices are to try to capture some of those numbers so we can give more hard data. But, um, I mean, they're regu- all these plants are regulated by EPA and by state and local officials, and they have to comply with a host of regulations. Um, so I think that in that area, sustainability has become a bigger and bigger issue. It's a customer expectation from the retail stores and the food service operators that purchase our product and from the consumers themselves. And mm-hmm. so, um, but when you say the EPA can regulate, I mean, recently, uh, I think it was North Carolina is trying to regulate uh, through agricultural or rather farm protection bills, um, otherwise known as ag-gag laws, um, trying to regulate how many times the EPA can fly over a wastewater lagoon. I mean... That doesn't seem like it's um, particularly consumer or environmentally friendly. Um, Why do you think that there is that kind of, um, shall we say, pushback on the idea of being inspected, certainly by a government agency like the EPA? I apologize. I'm not familiar with that situation. I think that's probably um, an on-farm issue, Mm -hmm. maybe. Quite possibly. yeah, I, I just don't yeah, know so the that's answer not to your that gig. particular question. Right, that's okay. Um, but again, you know, it's it's very interesting. I just heard Dr. Frank Mitleiner speak at the Institute of Medicine the week mm-hmm. before last in Washington D.C. And unfortunately, another myth that we've heard has been um, that somehow more efficient meat production is more environmentally uh, risky. And Dr. Mitleiner challenged that assumption, and he especially challenged some of the United Nations data that's often cited. There's a statistic that people frequently use that um, livestock production causes more environmental damage than, um, than autos and transportation. And Dr. Mitleiner argued that that's actually not the case. And now the, the United Nations admitted that actually that data was not accurate. And so he's leading a new effort to recalculate those numbers. And I heard his presentation in Washington, and it was absolutely fascinating. He says we're not even close, um, that transportation and energy production are far greater contributors. He also presented some data saying that um, efficient agriculture, the more efficient you are, the the fewer resources you use. So um, unfortunately, some of the, the common refrains may be actually quite opposite of what the data will show. Um, he was explaining, for example, in his presentation that it takes 
five cows in other countries to produce the same amount of milk that one cow would produce in California, for example. And when you're able to produce milk more efficiently, you have less of an environmental impact. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of data uh, in his presentation that was absolutely fascinating. It just wasn't what you've been hearing. Right. Where could people access, like, for instance, me? Where could I, what is his name again? Tell me again, Mitliner? Mitliner, it's a Liener? German name, yes. Huh? Um, and it's, uh, it's very interesting. We actually videotaped him afterwards. We had a camera uh-huh. there and we videotaped him and he, we're going to post it because it was so good that we, it was such interesting information that he agreed to just sort of recite it for us on camera. So we'll be so able to we'll access be, that on your American Meat Institute. Absolutely, but you com. can find, if you search his name, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a complicated spelling, but it's, uh, he's widely quoted and, his data should be published on the Institute of Medicine website as well because oh, he made a PowerPoint there. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, unfortunately, we have to close in just a minute or two, and I just want to bring up one last thing, which um, I know you and I have talked about, and I've even uh, written about it for the Huffington Post, and that is the level of polarity between the two sides. And I and I was, um, I you know, as you know, I put that quote up from your president um, saying, if you are already a member, I say thank you. If you are not, please consider joining our institute. Now more than ever, the industry must stand together. I mean, that indicates to me a sort of level of paranoia that I'm not sure is completely uh, warranted. Do you feel like that is um, a sort of prevalent or prevailing sentiment within your industry and something that you would like to address? Or do you think it's completely um, justified to feel that way? Well, I think that what he was speaking about were the, the increasing challenges we face. And mm-hmm. certainly we do feel that um, there have been some uh, some cases where we, we perhaps haven't gotten a fair shake from, from the media or from um, films like Food, Inc., but uh, what he was referring to there is that the challenges are huge. I mean, we've got food safety challenges. Yeah. We've got animal welfare challenges. We need to be collaborating. Um, so I don't think he intended to give off any kind of paranoid um, <laughs> message. <laughs> you might bring as, that up with him. You may have interpreted it. <laughs> but um, uh, the, um, there's just it's a recognition that we need to be collaborating and sharing good ideas. One of the big initiatives he's led is to make issues non-competitive. And we made animal welfare non-competitive in 2002. We made food safety non-competitive in the late 90s. And what that means is that we need to stand together and share information. So if you found a way to destroy a pathogen in your plant, don't keep it a secret. Share it with everybody else. And if you've got a great new tool for handling livestock in a low-stress way and you're a member of the American Meat Institute, then you're pretty much obligated to share that with others so that everybody can benefit because the better we are as an industry, everyone benefits benefits. Yeah. You know, when there's a black eye, because if somebody has a problem, if there's an undercover video that comes out of one plant, it makes us all look bad. I agree. And so we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help everybody in the industry be the best that they possibly can be. Right. And Dr. Grandin has been an absolute godsend to us. We didn't get much of an opportunity to chat about the things that she's done. We were the first ones to to partner with her and say, can you write us guidelines? And she wrote them in 1991 when she yeah. was a new professor. And then she wrote an audit for us in 1999. We've done similar things on the food safety front. And so we really do try to be proactive because producing safe food, producing nutritious food, 
caring for livestock and preventing problems is the best way to succeed as an industry. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to thank you again, Janet Riley from the American Meat Institute for joining me today. Um, and I want you to tell us one more time where the people can access those excellent videos that you've produced with uh, Temple Grandin that show the actual process of slaughtering both cattle and uh, pork. Um, those are our not on your website. They are on animalhandling.org. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's our dedicated animal welfare website. Okay. So animalhandling.org. Or if you Google Temple Grandin and uh, Slaughter, the videos will come right up. That sounds great. Thanks again, Janet, for joining thank me. You. And thank you to my sponsor. Thanks to my engineer, Jack Insley, and we'll see you next week. Remember, go to our website, sign up, and pledge your membership to the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.